0: Good morning, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, it's on page 890 in your pew Bible, if you want to use that resource. Isn't it a great privilege to praise God together? We began our worship service today by shouting, Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna appears six times, I believe, in the New Testament. It comes from two Hebrew words that have been combined into one expression. The Hebrew word yashah, which means save or deliver, and anah, which means pray or please. So put together, it means please save us. By adding in the highest, the crowd on that day was invoking heaven's blessing on them as they prayed for God's salvation from the Messiah. That phrase in the highest also reminds us of the angel song in Luke two fourteen when they said glory to God in the highest. And so this was a magnificent shout that was being raised to Jesus by the crowd. Save us now, Messiah, heaven sent one. The problem is that Israel was looking for a political savior, not a spiritual one. Jesus had indeed come to save his people, not from Rome, but from their sins. Do you remember what the angel told Joseph who was pledged to be married to Mary uh, before Jesus was born, the angel said to Joseph, You will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The Jews failed to comprehend that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows, who would be acquainted with grief and who would be crushed for their sins. Their cries were not answered in Jerusalem on that day. Their cries were really answered at the cross. In Luke's account of the triumphal entry, we read that as Jesus approached Jerusalem down descending from the Mount of Olives and, and he saw the city, what did he do? He wept. He wept over the city, saying, if you... Even you had known this day what makes for your peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Paul says in Romans 11 that since Israel refused to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, they lost the power to see him. God, by way of judgment, decreased their capacity to recognize Jesus for who he really was and is. God's punishment for their unbelief, a punishment that fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah and Moses, Paul refers to in Romans eleven eight, saying, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day, talking about even in Paul's day. But Paul makes it clear in the first 10 verses of Romans 11 that this punishment did not apply to every single Israelite. There's what, there was and always has been a remnant chosen by God's grace. Uh, Paul, in uh, the first 10 verses of Romans 11, offers himself as proof, saying, I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, named after Israel's first king even. Saul of Tarsus, and yet God saved me. Uh, Paul points them back to the 7,000 men who did not bow the knee to Baal back in Elijah's day. Elijah thought he was the only one left, and the Lord says, no, I have kept for me 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And so God has always had a remnant, even from the nation Israel, that he has kept for himself. A remnant, Paul says in Romans eleven five that is chosen by grace. And that's the point of Romans 11, 1 to 10 that we looked at last week. The remnant's continued existence is proof or it demonstrates God's continued commitment to Israel. Let me say that again. The remnant's continued existence demonstrates God's continued commitment to Israel. But better yet, as Paul goes on to show throughout the rest of Romans chapter 11, this remnant that presently exists is an indication of greater things to come, namely the salvation of all Israel. That's what we want to look at today in Romans chapter 11. The rest of the chapter, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Romans 11 verses 11 to 36. This is concluding a larger section in Romans chapters 9 to 11 that if you recall began with a lament. Remember Paul said I have deep sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my fellow Israelites. He says in chapter 10 my earnest prayer for them is that they would be saved. And now Paul is able to pray with confidence because he unfolds how God's plan of salvation will finally come about for Israel. One day, all Israel will be saved. And this will come about as a result of God's glorious plan. That's the title for today's message, God's glorious plan. Romans 11, 11 to 36. Again, it's on page 5 or 890 in your pew Bible. But rather than read this entire text at once, I want us to digest it in bite-sized portions. And even then, they'll kind of be big bites. But we're going to digest them in bite-sized portions so that hopefully we can appreciate how God will complete this marvelous, glorious plan of salvation. First, let's look at the providential strategy. God's providential strategy in verses 11 to 16 of Romans 11. Paul says, So I ask, So Paul in this section is laying out his fourth and final argument of a thesis that he stated near the beginning of Romans chapter 9 verse 6. Do you remember what that thesis is? It kind of launches this whole section. Paul's thesis of Romans 9 to 11 is God's word has not failed. That's important for us to know. It's important for Paul to prove because if God doesn't keep his word to Israel, how do we know that God will keep his promises to us? And so that's Paul's statement. That is his thesis for chapters 9 to 11. God's word has not failed. So far, we have completed three of the four arguments that Paul gives to support that thesis. Remember what uh, argument number one was. This was throughout the remainder of chapter 9, really up to verse 29 of chapter 9. Paul says, first of all, God never promised to save every single Israelite. That's his first argument, that God's word has not failed. The second argument, presented in chapter 9, verse 30, throughout the rest of chapter 10, is that Israel is responsible for her own unbelief. And then the third argument that Paul presents in the first 10 verses of chapter 11 is that God's promises are still being fulfilled in a remnant of Israel. Jews who have actually believed the gospel and embraced Jesus as their Messiah. And now Paul comes to his fourth and final argument to support his thesis, God's word has not failed, and that is this. God will one day save all Israel. God will yet save all Israel. And he begins this fourth argument with a question. Did Israel stumble so that they might fall? The indication being, did they stumble in such a way that they might fall beyond recovery? And Paul answers his own question saying, absolutely not. He says there is a providential strategy that is at work here. Because Israel rejected Jesus salvation has come to the Gentiles and the world has been enriched as a result of the gospel going to the Gentiles. This was true even in the first century. You might recall when, when Paul began his letter to the Galatians or yeah, to uh, the Colossians, Paul reported this. He said, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world it is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You see what was happening already in the first century? Because the Jews rejected Christ, uh, Paul had been preaching to the Jews, and what did he say? Because you reject this message of salvation, I am going to the Gentiles. And Paul became an apostle to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles rejoiced that God had made salvation available to them. And so the gospel started spreading across all the Roman Empire, so much so that Paul can say, midway through the first century, just decades after Jesus died and rose again, the gospel has gone out to the whole world. Nations everywhere are being blessed by the salvation of, that God brings on account of his wonderful grace. So the Jews rejected Christ. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. Now they're enjoying the blessings of salvation all over the world, and the world is being enriched by the gospel as a result. But this will lead to the final phase of God's great plan. Something that is yet future, but is certain to happen. Israel will become jealous of what the Gentiles have and will want this salvation for themselves. And here's Paul's thought, and this is what he says. He says, if the world was enriched through the salvation of the Gentiles, how much more will the world be enriched once Israel comes home? Once Israel comes home to Christ? once Israel finally believes and embraces Jesus as her Messiah. In this section, Paul says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. You might think, well, well, he ought to be telling Israel this. He says, no, there's, there's a message in here for you Gentiles. He says, and I'm speaking as one who is an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul says, in my ministry... As an apostle to the Gentiles, I am maximizing my ministry so as to make my fellow Jews jealous in order that I might save some of them. Now, I find Paul's statement in verse 14 remarkable, if not shocking, because he says something that most of us would never say did you catch what it was he says something very similar in first corinthians chapter 9 where he says i become all things to all men that i might by all means save some of them if one of us were to make a statement like that i can almost guarantee you that we would be corrected by the other christian we were talking to hey 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 wait a second you don't save anybody, only God does. Well, of course that's the case, and Paul understood that. But Paul also understood that God had committed to him the saving message of God's grace. In others of his epistles, Paul says, we have the privilege, listen, of being co-workers with God for the salvation of people. And so Paul says, yes, of course God is the one that saves, but God uses everyday, ordinary people like us who have believed in Jesus to get the message out. And yes, in a very real sense, when we deliver the message of salvation, we save people, we rescue them by God's power. That's what Paul is saying. As we proclaim the gospel... People will be saved by God's power, and we, being Jesus' ambassadors, can, in a very real sense, saying we're saving people. It's God saving people through us as we faithfully share the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm maximizing my ministry. I'm telling Gentiles like crazy about Christ. Because I want them to experience the blessings of salvation not only for their sakes, but so my fellow Jews will see that and they'll want that salvation for themselves. Isn't that amazing? Imagine what would happen if we maximized our ministry. If we magnified our manner of life as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be so alive in Christ, so full of love and gratitude to God, so strong in our love for one another. Jesus said in John 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, as I have loved you, so you ought also to love one another. We ought to be so full of Christ, so full of love, so full of the joy of the Spirit, love and peace and those other qualities that people ought to look in our life and say, you know, I have all this stuff, the things of this world. The psalmist said people have their portion in this world, but this man, this woman, this boy, this girl have something that I don't have, and and I want it. I thought of Cold Stone Creamery. (laughs) Take a sample, what do they have? Like it, love it, and what's the big one? Gotta have it. See, some of you, (laughs) gotta have it. I wonder what it's like if the unbelieving world around us, Jew and Gentile, sample the Christian faith by how they see your life. You could have other servings up there. It could be, I hate it. I'm not interested in it. Or maybe you like it, love it, gotta have it. Well, Paul said, I magnify my ministry. I am making the most of my role as an apostle to the Gentiles, not only to save them, but because I want to save my fellow Jews. Israel's salvation will be so transformative that Paul says their acceptance into God's kingdom will mean life from the dead. Verse 15. I think there's... A couple of different ways to understand that one is uh the bible describes us before christ as being dead in our trespasses and sins even if we're extremely religious apart from christ we are dead even in our religious works the bible describes our transformation as life from the dead that you were dead in your trespasses and sins but god made you alive by his grace in jesus christ so it could be that that they go from death to life But I think that Paul might be suggesting something else here. We'll see at the end of the chapter that Israel's mass conversion to Christ will occur near the end of this present age when Christ returns in power and glory. And I believe that their mass conversion to Christ will be immediately followed by the resurrection of the dead, which occurs at the second coming of Christ. And we'll look at that more in a second, but I think that's what Paul could be saying, that once all the Gentiles have been brought into the kingdom. And then the Jews are brought into the kingdom when they finally want what the Gentiles have, when they look on their Messiah and believe in him. At that point, the full number of God's elect people will come into his kingdom. Christ will come back in power and glory and the dead will be raised to life. And Paul says their conversion's gonna be the trigger For that incredible end time event when Christ returns in power and glory. He could be saying that. Whatever the case, the present remnant of believing Jews is an indication of something far greater to come. Greater things yet to come. And Paul illustrates this in verse 16 with two analogies. Look at that verse again if you would please. Romans 11 verse 16. He says, if the dough offered as fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So Paul's using two illustrations here, two analogies of the present remnant giving way to all Israel being saved. He first uses the analogy of the Old Testament offering of first fruits. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 15. And the idea is this, here's, here's the point he's making. If, if the loaf offered to the Lord, the loaf of bread from the dough from the first cut of the grain, if that's offered to the Lord, it's an indication that more is coming and that it all belongs to the Lord. It's the offering of the first fruits. It's an indication that there's more to come. And Paul presents this not only as a reality, but as a means for our encouragement, Uh, to make the most of our life as Jesus' ambassadors, to keep living out the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that your witness does make a difference, to live in such a way that the Jews and even other Gentiles will be jealous of what you have in Christ and will want it for themselves. This is written for our encouragement that if there's already a remnant, that remnant will soon expand to include all of Israel. I thought of if my wife bakes up a batch of cookie dough. say, Pastor Matt, what are you thinking about when you're preparing your sermon? First it's like Cold Stone Creamery. (laughs) Then it's like chocolate chip cookies. That's how my mind works. My wife makes a batch of cookie dough and takes some of that and, and presses them into cookies and puts them in the oven and sets them out on the counter. Here's the thing. I not only enjoy the cookies, she made from that batch of dough but those cookies are an indication that more cookies are coming (laughs) there's still a big portion of that batch there and that's essentially what paul is saying here it's the first fruits the remnant is the first fruits it's an indication of greater bigger things to come regarding israel's salvation the first fruit was abraham the father of the Jewish nation. What does the text say in Genesis 15, 6, the very first book of the Bible? It says Abraham, what? Believed God. And God credited it to Abraham for righteousness. The same is true of all of Abraham's descendants who trust in Christ. One day that will be true of all Israel. And Paul states it this way in the second analogy in verse 16. If the root of the tree is holy, then so are the branches. And this analogy becomes the basis for Paul's discussion in the next section, the Gentiles' privileged status. So so in the first section, he has has laid open, he kind of laid out before us in general God's providential plan that Israel rejected Christ so that salvation would go to the Gentiles, The world would be enriched through that gospel going to the nations, but that'll make Israel jealous so that they will want what the Gentiles have. That's God's providential plan as a whole to bring all Israel to salvation. But now Paul zeroes in on the Gentiles' privileged status in verses 17 to 24. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, but the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. Provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from, or for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? A lot said there. Books have been written on this, but we'll cover in short order. In these verses, Paul compares the people of God to an olive tree that has both natural and wild branches. This was a very useful metaphor for Paul to use because olive trees were and still are a major agricultural crop in Palestine, and really several other regions along the Mediterranean, including parts of Italy, which of course where this church was situated. One of the most fertile spots in Italy is Puglia on the southeast tip of Italy, which is the heel of the boot. That gives you an idea of that geography. Millions of trees are scattered throughout this region, about 50 to 60 million olive trees. They were originally planted by the Romans before the birth of Christ because they saw the economic potential of olive production. And they sought to plant trees throughout all the lands in their domain. Olive trees can live for hundreds of years. Here's a picture of ancient olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives where Jesus prayed on the eve of his crucifixion. Olive trees can live for centuries, but here's the thing. As they age, they become less productive. So to restore the olive tree's productivity, the fruitless branches are broken off And fresh olive shoots from another tree are grafted in. And this restores the productivity and health of the olive tree. And Paul is using this as an analogy for God's redemptive plan. The unbelieving, unfaithful Jews were broken off from the tree of blessing. And Gentiles were grafted in through faith in Christ as a result of God's grace, the gospel going to them. Now, shortly after his triumphal entry, which Robin Haley read about earlier, just days before his crucifixion, Jesus said to the Jews, quoting from Psalm 118, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then Jesus said, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. This was right after his triumphal entry. God's plan of redemption included breaking off the fruitless branches of unbelieving Israel and grafting into the tree of blessing, the blessing of salvation, believing Gentiles. And Paul talks about this in his letter to the Galatians, saying, So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. We just looked at that verse, Genesis 15, 6. Then he says, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would just justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed Through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The point is that the blessings of salvation for both Jewish and Gentile believers come from the root of God's covenant promises and power. This should promote humility and gratitude on the part of everyone. Especially us Gentiles. It should not produce pride and prejudice. And yet, some Gentiles in Paul's day, just like some in our day, thought of themselves as being superior to the Jews. How could you not believe in Jesus as your Messiah? And they started to look upon themselves as if they had more sense, more knowledge, more perception. Some of them, as I even noted last week, like Martin Luther, the reformer, began to develop a disdain for the Jews, a sort of theological prejudice that then led to racial prejudice. But Paul reminds the Gentiles, the only reason you're part of the tree at all is because of God's grace. The only reason that you are part of the tree is because you trust in Jesus, the Savior. And Paul says, be careful. After giving them a word of encouragement, he gives them a word of warning. Just as the Jews were broken off because of their unbelief, God will do the same to you unless you continue to trust wholly in him. In a couple of weeks, Brad Wade, one of our elders, is going to be preaching on a message that is titled something like, are you sure you're saved or are you really saved? And there are some warnings that are going to be presented there against what could be called demon faith. James talks about this. The devil and his demons are very orthodox in their theology. They believe that there is one God who is Uh, coexisting and uh, co-eternal, co-majestic in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one essence. He believes that Jesus, the Son of God, who came to die on the cross for the sins of the world. The devil himself is very orthodox in his theology, but he doesn't love God. He rebels against God. He does not do the will of God. And so it's important for us who believe in Jesus to make sure that we really do trust in him, that we recognize salvation is an act of God's grace toward us. Because if we develop an air of superiority over other Christians or other those whose eyes have not yet been open to the gospel, then we put ourselves in danger of being among those who will be broken off. I think that's Paul's point in verses 21 and 22. Look at those verses again. Romans 11, 21 and 22. He says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. And that's one of the great evidences of salvation. As we consider God's continuing kindness toward us, that will result in our continued kindness toward others. And God's going to show kindness to the Jews once again by grafting them into the tree through faith in Christ. It's the most natural thing for God to do, salvifically speaking, because as Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to what? To the Jew first. And to the Greeks and to the Gentiles, yes, but to the Jew first. Do you remember what Jesus said to the woman at well in Samaria? Salvation is from where? From the Jews salvation is from the Jews. What did he mean by that? Well, he's saying the unfolding revelation of God's saving plan came through the prophetic scriptures through Israel, and they culminate in the coming of the Messiah himself, who is a Jew. So yes, in a very real sense, salvation is from the Jews. And we read about this promised salvation in verses 25 to 32. So we've looked at god's providential strategy we've considered the gentiles privileged status and the attitude that ought to produce and now we look at god's promised salvation to israel verses 25 to 32 lest you be wise in your own sight i do not want you to be unaware of this mystery brothers a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy for God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. How amazing God is. Here in this section, Paul reveals a mystery. And Paul actually defines what he means by mystery at the end of Romans in chapter 16, where he defines mystery as a plan kept secret from the beginning of time, but now made known through the prophetic scriptures according to the commandment of the eternal God. That's what a mystery is, how Paul himself defines it in Romans. It is a plan that has been kept secret from the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the prophetic scriptures according to the command of the eternal God. And here's the truth, the mystery that Paul is revealing here the previously hidden but now revealed truth, is that the hardening of Israel, which is just partial, not every Israelite has been hardened, just most of the nation at this present time, will last only until the divinely determined number of Gentiles enter into God's kingdom through faith in Christ. And once that happens, all Israel will be saved the remnant of believing Jews will expand to include the entire nation. Paul says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. That is, they will become jealous of the Gentiles. They will want what the Gentiles have, got to have it, and God will give it to them when they finally believe on Jesus as their Messiah. And this was all part of God's plan from the very beginning. Israel was broken off from the tree of blessing so that the gospel would go to the Gentiles and the world would be enriched through the blessings of salvation so that Israel would become jealous, want this salvation for themselves, and God will give it to them when they finally trust in Jesus as their Messiah. This is the last stage of human history, of a historical process, an event that will occur at the end of the present age when Christ returns in power and glory. Paul quotes Isaiah 59, where the prophet says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and will take away their sins. What an awesome day that's going to be. But it's important to remember that the salvation of all Israel will take place only as individual Israelites really believe in Jesus as their Messiah. This salvation is not automatic. It is all of grace. God will open their eyes. He will unstop their ears. They will recognize their Messiah for who he is, and they will embrace him as their Messiah. Faith in Christ is ever the only means of salvation, both for Jews and for Gentiles. Paul says, right now, at this present time, they are God's enemies, Paul says, for your sake, for the Gentiles, so that the gospel could go to you. But in terms of God's election, remember, God has chosen his people in Christ before the foundation of the world. He's saying, look, the story isn't over. Right now, as regards to the gospel, yes, they are enemies of God for your sake, so you could be saved, so that you could hear the gospel so that you could believe on Christ. But in terms of their election, the remnant that God has kept for himself is an indication of better things to come. One day, all Israel will be saved. As one commentator put it, Israel cannot be written off permanently as God's enemies because they are still God's elect and beloved people. So the truth for this morning is, Praise God for his marvelous plan to save all Israel. Praise God for his marvelous plan to save all Israel. That's where our study of God's plan of redemption should always lead us, to praise God. And this is the note on which Romans 11 ends. In fact, really this entire section, Romans 9 to 11 ends. We've so far seen Paul's providential strategy or God's providential strategy, Paul has presented. We've seen the Gentiles' privileged status. Now we've read about Israel's promised salvation. And now we come to Paul's praise-filled summary in verses 33 to 36. Paul's theology turns to doxology. Listen to this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. As Paul considers God's glorious plan of salvation, he's compelled to praise God because of his infinite wisdom and his extravagant grace. In verse 33, Paul says the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge are so deep, we can't even begin to plumb the depths. I thought it's like snorkeling in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You might get a few feet under the surface of the water and see some beautiful things, but you're only seeing uh, the tiniest fraction of everything beautiful that's there. Because you're barely below the surface. And that's what it's like when we try to understand the wisdom and knowledge of God when it comes to the salvation of the nations. In verses 34 and 35, uh, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, and Job chapter 41, verse 11, to emphasize that God has no counselor and God has no creditor. God has no counselor because no one is smart enough to tell God how to run the world. And God is no creditor because nobody has ever given to God anything like God should repay him. Because from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. Now the Old Testament context of these two quotes are important. I said a moment ago that he quotes Isaiah and he quotes Job in these verses. Let me mention first the Isaiah quote which appears in. In verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The original context of this quote is is very key because it came at a time in Isaiah's ministry where God promised, God had pronounced judgment against Israel that Babylon would conquer them, but God also promised that he would deliver them from Babylon. But Israel is filled with doubt and fear. They're not sure whether they can really believe God because Babylon is like so incredibly powerful and Israel is so pathetically weak. And yet God reassures Israel, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to save you just as I promised because I know that Babylon is powerful. I know that you are pathetically weak. But take a look at me, because all the nations, to me, in terms of their power, are as nothing. God compares them to a drop from a bucket or mere dust on God's scales. He says, they're nothing for me. They're powerful to you. It's nothing for me. You see how this relates to God's promise of salvation for all Israel in Romans 11? We consider Israel's long-standing rejection of the Messiah her persistence in unbelief, and that makes her inclusion in God's kingdom seem impossible. But as God showed in Israel's deliverance from Babylon, God loves to effect salvation for the weak so that the glory of his strength might be evident to all. That's the point Paul is making, and that's why this quote from Isaiah is so relevant to God's redemptive plan for the nation's. In the next verse, verse 35, he quotes Job, Job 41:11. Do you remember the story of Job? He's like, "What a sufferer." And in the midst of his horrific suffering, suffering to a degree that, that none of us will ever likely experience, Job begins to doubt God's wisdom, God's justice, God's sense of fairness. And a big chunk of Job in the middle is God responding to Job by pointing out the puniness of his perspective. God's basic point throughout all these chapters where he just overwhelms Job with his might and his majesty and his wisdom is this. As the creator, God God has the capacity to oversee and direct the world that he himself has established. Just as Job doubted God's wisdom and justice, so Christians, too, look at the world around us and we're inclined to question God and his wisdom and his way of doing things in our day. We struggle with God's choice to elect some and harden others. We can be tempted to to twist or at least soften the clear meaning of Scripture so that it lines up with our way of thinking, with what we think is fair, with how we think God ought to run things. But we, like Job, need to remember that our perspective is so puny. Whereas God's perspective is infinitely comprehensive and perfect. As Tom Schreiner put it, quote, God is better to no one's wisdom, strength, or goodness, and he accomplishes his purposes by his own initiative, end quote. How so? Why is it that no one functions as God's counselor or creditor? Paul answers this question in the very last verse, for from him and through him and to him are all things To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is saying here that God is the source of all things. God is the means by which all things are accomplished. And God is the goal of all things. Therefore, God gets all the glory. And he punctuates this statement with a firm amen, which means so be it. May God receive all the glory, honor, and praise in all things, and especially the work of redemption. And that's the note on which Romans 11 ends. This whole section that we've been covering the last couple of months, Romans 9 to 11, opens with a lament. And it ends with praise. We see a remarkable balance between God's sovereignty and humanity's responsibility. In fact, this whole section, Romans 9 to 11, seems to have a chiastic structure to it with the different sections balancing out one another and and drawing the eye and the ear to the central section in chapter 10, which focuses pinpoint on verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, that is God's promise to you. And God's word does not fail. As the psalmist said in Psalm thirty-three, twenty-one, in him our hearts rejoice. Why? Because we trust in his holy name. Let's pray. Father God, as we have now finished our study of Romans 9 to 11, We feel, or at least I feel, that we have barely scratched the surface in terms of the awesome immensity of your plan of redemption for Jews and Gentiles. God, how can we do anything else but, like Paul, praise you for your wisdom, your grace, your majesty, glory, and your might? I pray, Lord, that our life would be a song of praise to you, And that we would live in such a way that others would see our love for you and for one another. They would see our good works. They would see the gospel and the difference it has made in our lives. And that they would want that for themselves. Lord Jesus, you yourself said to your disciples, let your light shine before others in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so, Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would fill us, that you would fuel us with love for you, that others may come to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.